<laughs> Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle podcast. I am so excited this morning to be sitting here talking to my friend and fellow writer, Melissa Gould. She has an incredible book that came out that I read for a book club that I was in. So she and I have actually met each other multiple times over the interwebs. Hopefully one day we'll get to do that live. But her book is called Widowish and it is just a beautiful, it's almost like reading someone's private emails. I feel like it's, it's super raw and I'm going to let her describe it to you, but we were just talking off mic a minute ago. It's kind of going everywhere. It's like number one in Germany. It's got a German cover now. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason why people are responding to the writing, but let me tell you a little bit about her. Her essays have been published in the New York times, the Los Angeles times, the Washington post, the Hollywood reporter, Buzzfeed, and more. She's an award-winning screenwriter who's worked on such shows as Bill Nye, the science guy, Beverly Hills, 90210, party of five, which sang my song song. Oh my God. I love Charlie so much. And Lizzie McGuire. She lives in Los Angeles, California. Her memoir widowish is available wherever books are sold. Find her at www.widowish.com and on Instagram. And we'll put those connections in the show notes afterwards. Melissa, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. It's so nice to just be one-on-one with you. And I'm so looking forward to our conversation. I know the internet is this really strange place that everyone hates it, but also during the pandemic, I did so much reading and there were so many books that spoke to me that meant something to me. And so I feel like maybe I'm a little stalkerish, but I feel like we've been connecting over those, Hey, you know, I like your post. I like this for such a long time. And it's lovely to have you all to myself for. That's how I feel. It's so nice. Yeah. And I, I know the internet is weird that way, but I feel like you still make that connection with not everybody, but with some people. And it just is so nice to kind of be in community with you. When people go and look at your web stuff, they'll see that you do things like this, not just this podcast, but you have other book events and things that are online that anyone can attend. So if they enjoy this, which they will, there'll be other ways to connect. So tell our listeners about your book Widowish. Tell tell them about what the story is and just give us a little sense of why I might have wanted you to be on the podcast called Grief is My Side Hustle. Okay, I will tell you. So Widowish is my memoir that is really about so many things. I mean, it's a love story that is wrapped up in a grief story that really has more love in it. And it's also about the expectations of grief and mourning and in my case, young widowhood. Mm -hmm. Husband, Joel, who was my person, my everything, passed away of a mosquito bite. He actually contracted West Nile virus. He was more susceptible to it. And all of this is in the book because he also had multiple sclerosis. But that said, we were living very full lives. We were managing his disease, but he ended up getting bitten by this mosquito and it was lethal. And I became a younger widow and what I call an only parent to our daughter who was 13 at the time. And my life completely upended and I had to figure out how I was going going to move forward without Joel by my side. And so Widowish really explains my whole journey, my whole love story with Joel and with my daughter. And also, as I said, the 
expectations that other people have of grief and mourning. That's right. Yeah. And that's how I came up with the title widow-ish because I realized that people didn't know when they saw me taking my daughter to school or shopping at Trader Joe's or going into a yoga class, they didn't necessarily look at me and think, oh, she's a widow. She must be in pain. She must be grieving. They just thought I was another like mom in the neighborhood, another person, but I felt like a widow. And I kind of say that with widowish, you know, I didn't look like a widow and I didn't necessarily act like a widow because like I said, I was trying to keep my daughter on track, Yeah. but I felt like a widow, you know, and I still, it's been years and I am definitely a widow. That is, that is in many ways, my identity, but it's an interesting thing to be a younger widow in the world. And the way people react to you, respond to you. And it's been interesting. You gave a beautiful description of the book. And I would just say to people listening, it's like even deeper than that. You know, it's navigating friendships. It's navigating being a parent to a teenager. It's in the early part chapters of the book. You're also navigating Joel's illness before he gets contracts West Nile. And you talk about being a working mom. I mean, there's just... I feel like it hits all the high notes. You know, not everybody is a screenwriter out in LA, but there's, everybody has a job that they have to do. Everybody has friends that, you know, are trying to be supportive and maybe not always hitting the mark with those sorts of things. Everybody has extended family that want us to feel better. I just sort of feel like in each chapter of the book, you give us another piece that sort of, even if our experience isn't similar the experience of having to navigate it is pretty universal once you have this tremendous loss in your life. I actually was stunned the first time I heard you talk about it. It's been a long time in the like chronicity of the, of the calendar, but I'm curious about what it feels like to be doing so much talking because your book is out now. What is that like to have the calendar years have sort of, but people are approaching this as if this is your story right now? Yeah, that's such a great question, Megan. I, it's been seven years since Joel died. I started writing about him and publishing all of those essays that you mentioned probably two years after he died. Once I started writing about Joel and my life and being a widow in the world, I couldn't stop. And, and so I started publishing those essays and ultimately I wrote this book. So talking about it now really does in many ways, bring me right back. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting because I do feel like, you know, Joel is no longer here, but I feel like he's with me all the time. Mm-hmm. And I feel like in writing this book, the greatest gift, which I did not see coming is it keeps him alive in that way. Like here we are talking about him, talking about our life together. So he's still very present for me. Sometimes, you know, some days are harder than others. And I think that is just grief. I mean, I think I will always be grieving. I've said before, you know, I think time is really such a miraculous healer. Yeah. I don't think I could sit here and have these conversations, you know, seven years ago, six years ago, five years ago, I think it would have been much more difficult, but sometimes it is still really difficult. You know, my, my daughter, you know, was 13 in the book. She's now 20. And I feel like some things hit me really hard. You know, she's a big birthday 
coming up. And it's really hitting me hard because she doesn't know what she's missing out on in a way. I mean, obviously she feels the loss of her father, but you know, Joel died when Sophie was 13. That's a very tender age yeah. for a kid. And you know, she was still in middle school. And when I think like he missed so much of her life, those really kind of like seminal moments of starting high school, getting a driver's license, yeah. eventually going to college, you know, so she feels like just this presence that's maybe sort of nebulous at this point, but I know what yeah. Joel would like and what he would be feeling and how he would be reacting and responding and how much he would be there for his daughter who, you know, they were so close. I guess the point is to say, so this is now seven years and like this birthday coming up is hitting me much harder than like when she turned 16. Totally get that. Totally get that. You're holding the loss of the life that Joel didn't get to live. He would have loved to have seen her through all of these moments and the loss maybe that your daughter wouldn't even comprehensively understand because she, you know, she was 13. She didn't know her dad in that same way, but like, you know, what he would be like for her 21st birthday and your yes. own loss grief and modern grief theory have all these words for that about sort of, you know, the ambiguous loss or the disenfranchised loss of, yeah. of you know, and, and I'm grateful for all those words, but I do know that, you know, when you're talking about people don't know you're a widow, I think people who haven't had a primary loss don't understand that it's a 360 degree mirror of the way I, I miss the past. I miss the future. I miss, right. That's so much of it. It's like, really, it's, it's all of the things it's the future, I guess, you know, it's very, like, I think we all practice to like be here now, sure. be in the moment, but when you are really suffering in your grief and missing the person so much, it's hard to just be here now and be it in is. the moment. I always say like, it's the presence of an absence that is always there, yeah. you know? So again, it gets easier. I think, yeah. I, I do think grief does get easier but you're always, it's always with you, at least for me. I mean, that's my experience. Yeah. And, and by I, the way, like, you know, my life is full. Like I have friends and family and love in my life and a, a boyfriend who I write about in the book, who's, who's very much still in the picture. And I still miss my husband. Yeah, that's right. You know, it's not like it goes away. Well, and it's not a failure. You're not doing something wrong in the moments that you, you know, feel loss about that. It, that's grief is, it feels the way that it feels. And I think, I think a lot of it is not something that we can prep for or be conscious of. Today is actually, today is the anniversary, four year anniversary of my dad's death. And one thing that I've learned, right. yeah, yeah. One thing that I've learned is that I, the day itself is usually less loaded than the, than the lead up to it, that, that I am processing. And I, I put on my Instagram, you may have seen it. Like I just had a, a total meltdown fit about dishes in the sink the other day. And I really was having this very like, why am I the least important person in my house? Why do my kids, why are they such assholes that they leave things for me to clean up after them? Like I'm Cinderella. And what I've learned, and I really want to point this out is that it isn't just the time that shifts the grief. It's the way that you hold and express the grief, right? Like the name of this podcast used to be grieve is a verb, meaning there are action oriented events that have to help you sort of transform the energy. Time helps the progression of time. But I know as a trauma therapist, which 
in a lot of ways is about sort of energy that doesn't move through us for a variety of reasons, or it moves through us, but it really dysregulates us in the process, that there are these activities that help us manage, you know, it's like you get a giant weight that gets dropped out of the sky that then it's like, okay, well, this is your scary. You got to figure it out. And it's the figuring it out. And so I'm wondering if you could talk about what your figuring it out looked like. I mean, I really feel like, you know, the answer to the question is everything in your book, but you do connect with some other young women, another one widow eventually who's, who you are sort of, I think mentor each other and then mentor some other people, but also you're a writer and, and you mentioned you were in a writer's group and you, and writing is one of those creative processes. We know this, like neurologists tell us that using the words to process through and come to understand our stories, that it doesn't feel that thing that the thing that people do for like a year where they wake up and they forget for just one second that the person died, right? Oh, it's so brutal. You know, eventually some of the, some of the narrative updates, right? Like the software updates. And it's like, at some point you wake up and you know, you know, the reality, but I think writing I mean, I know writing is one of those techniques. There are tons, but I'd love for you to talk about both the role of writing and then also connecting to other people who kind of get it. Okay. I love talking about that. I just want to comment though, Megan, because you said something um, like today is a four-year anniversary for you and you really felt it the other day. And I just have to say, and I do write about this in a widow-ish also, which is That's something else where there is this expectation that certain days are going to be really difficult. Like I just spoke about my daughter's birthday, but I think what I've learned also in this just grief process, grief journey, the days that you expect you're going to be completely bereft and so hard to get out of bed. Sometimes those days are like Joel's birthday comes around. I'm fine. I almost like, oh, that's right today's his birthday or our anniversary. You know, those are things that in my first year of widowhood, I was anticipating these days and and having anxiety about what I would feel and what I, how I would respond and react on those specific kind of anniversaries. And what I realized is grief is so unpredictable. I know, you know, this it's just, you know, it hits you when it hits you and there's no right or wrong. You know, there's no like, like I said, Joel's birthday could come around and I'll, I'll meet a friend for happy hour and host to Joel, but it's not like I'm sitting there like, Oh, you know, maybe I will, but I don't have that expectation anymore. And I think that's something you kind of learn when you're managing your grief, but yeah. as far as let me say uh, one thing, which is, I also think that may be also a reflection of the fact that you do grief every day and that you expect mm-hmm. grief to be organic and that you make room for it all the time. In my office work, in my, in my clinical work, I have a bunch of folks who they, they want to push grief to the back of the bus, but they're willing on certain days to let it come to the front of the bus and address it. And so I think of them as sort of white knuckling their way through their feelings, but then they let themselves like binge on it on the anniversaries. So I do think there is a subset of people where like those anniversaries are really important because that's all they're letting themselves have, or they're going to let themselves have it even maybe even more magnified than they feel it because they're not able to do what you are describing and what I think I you know, aspire to advocate for people, which is like, just let it be as it is, do it every day to whatever degree. 
Yeah, I mean, that's such an interesting perspective and I totally get that. And that's the other thing. There's no right or wrong. That's right. Agree. That's right. You know, and I think some people feel like they're doing it wrong or it's easy to kind of compare. Well, like her husband died the same time as mine and I, you know, can't get out of bed every day and she's living her, you know, whatever. We do that with everything. You, we do. you look at like a baby in the park and you're like, oh, she, that baby's taking a bottle and my kid isn't. And, you know, there's always this like self-doubt and everything and grief is really no different, but I feel strongly that there is no right or wrong and people need to be very kind with themselves about however it is. Yeah. React. I think sometimes people, I think fear drives a lot of that comparison and whether it's you're comparing yourself as a mother or a woman or whatever, I think if you go back underneath comparison, it, there is real fear that somehow something that you need or deeply, deeply desire will be outside of your reach, right? If I'm not as thin as that woman, then I'm not going to be able to get married. If their baby is, you know, not taking a bottle anymore and sleeping through the night, then my kid's not going to get into Harvard that like, there's just a lot of, you know, fear. And I think that thing that you said a minute ago, which is like, we're, you know, we all understand, at least intellectually, many of us understand that being in the here and now is probably the best we can ever do. It's very easy to get pulled out of that by things like, you know, longing and sadness and and grief, but also fear that things are not going to turn out okay. And there's a lot of fear in grief. One of the statistics that I give people and they're like, poof, that's good to hear is that like the human body doesn't really let itself cry forever. We have this thing called the, the vagal response, which will put you to sleep. Like if you're too, and, and it develops when babies cry themselves to sleep, that's the, the neuro pathway. That's like, Oh, okay. Well now that's why at around four months, baby, when it, when it develops, babies can cry themselves to sleep. And so when people are like, Megan, I don't want to start crying. Cause I'm never going to stop. I'm like, glad you brought that up. Let me tell you the bioscience. <laughs> Like that's not right. And and honestly, for many people, they're like, okay, so there's some data out there that says that people tend to cry in like seven minute jags. So I'm like, look, you may be an outlier, but most people really like cry for seven minutes and then their body gets exhausted. Maybe you'll do it after you get some water and take a nap. You'll cry some more, but you know, that fear that we all have, like, oh, it's going to, it's going to pull me under the water forever. That does happen. I work yeah. with people where that happens. And in fact, to some degree, I had that happen to myself, but it's a very small percentage. Most of us, we have a big, big cry. We feel better. And then we're tired. Right. right? right. Oh, interesting. Wow. Yeah. So I didn't mean to interrupt you. You were going to answer the question <laughs> That's about okay. connecting with other people, you know, to sort of creating a little bit of community in something that where there isn't a ton because you did lose your husband sort of out of chronological order and also what the writing process did and how that helped. You can answer. Yeah, no, the thing about writing, which was so interesting to me is, you know, as you mentioned, I was a screenwriter for most of my life. It's always how I made my living. And when my husband died, a friend invited me to join her writing group. Mm. And I thought, some somewhere I was so deep in my grief at that time, but somewhere I thought, you know what, that could be just a baby step for me to kind of find my way back to myself. And so I joined the group and I started working on a novel because mm-hmm. as a screenwriter, I always wrote fiction. You know, I, it just, that's what I did. That's yeah. kind of what I knew. And I thought I'm going to take this time and really like work on a novel. And 
I actually, just to backtrack, I I was a little bit nervous to join the class and I was sort of snobby. Like, what am I like? I'm a writer. I'm a real writer. I don't know who these people are, you know, terrible, but I kind of like forced myself to join this group. And it was the most loving, warmest, welcoming group of people. I went once a week and it was crucial to my well-being. And I would just go and I worked it out with my daughter and, you know, like I'm going to be gone for two hours once a week. And that was huge. That was a big step in yeah, those early days. of Absolutely. Um, but anyway, long story short, the, the whole story is in the book, but I started working on this novel and my friend at one point said to me after weeks and weeks and weeks of being in the group together, oh, but wait, an important piece I'm leaving out. I started dating somebody Yeah. very unexpectedly and within a year of losing my husband. So what happened is I was working on this novel. I confided in my friend that I had been out a few times with this guy named Marcos in the book. And she kind of like looked at me and was like, okay, wait a minute. Your husband just died. You're raising Sophie on your own. You're now telling me that you've been dating someone. I can't believe you're not writing about it. And I had such a strange reaction, Megan. I was like, I love this part angry. of the book. I was like angry. I was like, how dare you? Like, you know, why in the world would she tell me or suggest that I should start writing about that? You know, because I never saw myself as, you know, a memoirist or anybody that would share my life. You know, I really am a very private person, even though here I've written all right. these essays and written memoir, <laughs> but I'm a very private person. So she said, listen, I love your novel, but there is so much there that you are experiencing and going through. And it will be such a gift to yourself and a gift to others. If you start writing about what you're going through personally. And I just thought, I don't do that. And it really infuriated me, but of yeah. course, as these things go, I couldn't stop thinking about it. She kind of planted the seed. Uh, the and then that whole week leading up to the next class, that's all I kept thinking about. It was like her words just resonated, you know, like you have a deep emotional journey you're going through. This will be a gift to yourself and others. You know, you're dealing with some really big issues here. It'd be so cathartic to write about them. And so by the time I showed up to class the following week, I was bursting yes. to tell my story. So I did. So that night in class, like, you know, the timer went off and I started just writing, 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 writing. And that more or less became my first essay mm -hmm. about being a young widow, being out in the world as a widow and an only parent and, and seeing somebody new. And it was the most healing thing I could have done for myself. Yeah. It's possible I would have come to that on my own eventually, but like my friend suggested it and it really, I mean, it was so out of love. It, she could have said, you know, you really should take up surfing right. or why don't you like move to France and become a chef? Like it was the most outrageous, like for her to make that benign suggestion of start writing about it really threw me, but I'm so glad that I, I was able to kind of absorb it and mm and really listened to her. And then I started writing about this whole experience. And once I started, I couldn't stop. Yeah. You know, I really was like, I had so much to say about all of it. And it was so healing and so cathartic. And then the thing I couldn't believe was that people were actually interested in reading about it. Yeah. 
you know, cause in class you would, we would write and then we would share and we would read and, and I kept getting encouragement. And then, and then of course I would run into friends and, you know, I didn't want to tell everybody, you know, I, I would hear from people and how are you and what are you up to? And I would just say, read this essay. And I would like email, I had like an email list of like friends and I would send my essays to them. Oh, so you didn't have to talk about it. You could give yeah, them. I didn't want to okay. say like today was really hard or, you know, I miss my husband so much, or I think I'm falling in love. It was easier for me to have people read it. That led to a column at the Huffington Post. Yep. And then once I was in the Huffington Post, I was like, wow, I, I mean, my, they always like featured my stuff. I, I, it just was like, I couldn't believe any of it. I couldn't believe yeah. that people were interested. And then I just started pitching to other outlets and, and my stories were getting published. And I just was like, wow, there's, I'm really tapping into something. But it was because of those essays and my yeah. columns specifically in the Huffington Post that I started hearing from other young widows. Yep. And that is how more or less I started a widow group in my neighborhood with another woman, Allison, who similar to like my writing group, like I forced myself, like I, I wasn't really sure, but I had a feeling it would be good for me. So I did it. Yep. There was a woman in the neighborhood named Allison. She had twin daughters who were a little bit older than Sophie. We I didn't really know her, but I vaguely heard her story. You know, she had also lost her husband a few years prior to me and she had reached out to me and I did not want to get back to her because I was very territorial in my grief. I thought, well, she may have lost her husband, but she wasn't married to Joel and very like, nobody knows my story. Like mine is the worst. I win the contest because my marriage was great. And my husband was amazing. You know, it was so silly, but, but it took me a minute because I kept hearing from people. You really should meet Allison. You really, she's great. And she's open to meeting with you and she's been through what you've been through. And so forced myself to go and meet this woman, Allison, the other town widow. And I loved her. And, and just like with my writing, I, once I kind of let go of the fact that, you know, my ideas about other widows or their experience with grief, it it was amazing. And Allison has turned out to be one of my closest friends. And, and so when I started hearing from people because of my essays, I said to her, I'm hearing from all these people, maybe we should start a little group because she had suggested it earlier. You know, it's a very strange thing, Megan, in our neighborhood, there are a lot of people who have lost a spouse. Um, and I don't know if it's just like, you know, I was in my forties when Joel died. I don't know if it's just the age or maybe, you know, there's more cancer in the world. It's, there's all kinds of reasons why people lose somebody, but there were enough people in our neighborhood that we felt like, well, maybe we just get us together. But then I was able to include some people here in Los Angeles, where I live, who had reached out to me because of the essays they read at the Huffington Post. And so we started this younger widow and widower group. And that also was incredibly healing to just really share our stories. You know, I was very clear when we started the group that we were not really a bereavement group. There was no therapist on site. There was no, like, it was kind of like, we have this collective shared experience. We all kind of have walked this walk. Let's just get together. It was more of a social thing, but of course, you know, we cried, we laughed, like we went through everything, but it was kind of a safe space for all of us to just share what it was like to be young 
Most of us were in our forties, some were in their thirties. Most of us had kids, some, you know, they ranged in age from like two years old to college. It was so nice not to feel like that self-consciousness that so many of us felt that I certainly felt, like I said, going to Trader Joe's. And I knew when people looked at me, that was the first thing they thought. Yes. You know, like, oh, that's the, her husband yeah. died. Yeah. There's so so much in what you just described that I like, I could spend an hour talking about it. I want to highlight a couple of things. So one is that community that you built with other widows. I find it really relatable because I think the, I always say like, oh, I became a therapist sort of back asswards. I became a trauma therapist by being pulled into the job. I didn't sit down and think like, you know, it'd be really good for me if I studied this and I worked on that. It was like, as the need came up, I was like, oh shit, I'm going to have to go learn about this. And then I would get there and be like, oh my God, I'm so glad. But what I've learned, not just in grief and loss, but in general, is that when I have a very strong negative reaction to something, I should sit with that for a second. The the things where I'm like, oh hell. I mean, I even said it about this podcast when the, when it was suggested to me that I do a podcast, I was like, absolutely not move on. Like I, you know, I was talking to my team and I was like, Nope, that's not happening. I'm not learning more technology. I already have a blog, like keep going. And just as you said, you know, it gets in there and I feel like there's a trust this process thing in life, but particularly in grief and loss, which is no, we are wired to heal that the body wants to have a life and to live a life and not be burdened in a terrible thing happened to me. And therefore the rest of my life doesn't exist anymore. We need to take terrible thing, incorporate it. That takes some time. It takes much more time than society understands. And it becomes a job that we do forever. It feels different over time. In my instance, because it's what traumatized me when my mom died, I don't want that to be the end of all the good things. I want to heal after that event. And just as you were saying, when I I did some inpatient treatment in Tennessee after my mom died, because I just could not stop going under the water with all the sensations and feelings of it. When people asked me, how are you doing? I had no way of communicating. What I love about what you were describing was you didn't have to go into the, all the feelings because you ran into someone in Trader Joe's. You were like, let me send you my blog link and then you'll be up to speed. I mean, it was, it's right. such a beautiful tool you know, when I got to inpatient treatment, there were 18 people there. 10 of them had lost their moms. And I felt like these knots inside me unloosened. We were in a songwriting workshop in this amazing recording studio that like Dolly Parton and Taylor Swift had recorded in. And this leader, this, this vocalist was like, okay, you know, write about whatever you're going to write about. We'll turn it into a song. And then she just, I think, out of intuition, asked people, wait a minute, how many people here have lost their moms? And so just the percentage alone of like, I don't need to explain to people why I am off my rocker. They just get it. That sense of community is so important when you're trying to do something hard. Like regardless of whatever the hard stretch you're, you know, it could be that you're trying to write a book because you're, that's where your career is going or you're trying to open a restaurant or whatever, but to be in a room where you don't have to be guarded and afraid. And we know some neuroscience around that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Where you can just feel that you can relax because 
the back of the brain has this reactive response system called the amygdala. It blows up like a balloon when you're startled. And in early loss, it's, it's, you know, when you, somebody, you get a phone call and somebody died, like it, it's like you, someone rang a gong in the back of your brain and your head. So you're not coding your memories properly. You can't do multi-stepped activities, like open the packet, put the water in, like feel really dumb. So when I'm talking to early grievers, I'm walking them through that. Like, listen, your brain is not working that well. Like this is a really challenging position to be in. But also when I'm talking to later grievers and they're like, no, I don't want to, it's fine. I'll go to dinner with my girlfriends. I always feel weird with them, but it's okay. You know, they mean well, that's fine. But you also have to have the other space where that amygdala is not enlarged because if you don't, curiosity, which is way up here further in your brain and that sense of connection is not online. So all you are is sort of guarded. And one of the things that happens for people in grief and loss is they feel really isolated. And it makes like perfect mathematical sense when you look at what's happening with the brain and what I want is connection, but I already know these people, they didn't have their husband suddenly die. So they're well-meaning, but like, it's like, I'm trying, they're not native speakers of my language. Well, that's exactly right. It is sort of like a language where it's, it's, or it's just like, you know, when you're traveling and you, you could be in a foreign country and you haven't heard English in so long. And then suddenly you hear somebody speaking uh, English. Where are you guys from? Yeah. You know, I'm from California. Talk to you. Yeah. And it's like, there's just a connection. And then, you know, you go on your separate ways again, but it's like, you need that reprieve, yeah. you know? And I think that's what building this community or why building this community is so important. Yeah. You know? You do speak the same language and you have been through something similar. Yeah. Let me ask this question. It's been formulating in my head and I've, I have sort of asked it to a couple of other people. I think that, I think there is a progression in terms of the intensity of grief. And certainly for me, the writing that I sort of love the most of mine is probably the rawest. It's the stuff that I, that woke me up at three o'clock in the morning that, you know, would make me cry to write myself. I don't wake up at three o'clock. Well, I mean, I do sometimes, but parts of my brain have healed. Part of my grief journey and processes is further down the road. And one thing that, that has come up with friends or other colleagues is like, when are you going to stop talking about this? Or, you know, aren't you sick of always being sad? You know, I have, I have some people who understood me. I mean, my mantra about myself was, you know, I'm happy all the time. I'm still happy all the time. I just have another job that I also do. And I don't consider what I'm doing morbid when I'm talking to people about grief and loss. We laugh a lot on the podcast. We're smiling. We're talking about, I would say we're talking about love all the time, but I am curious about like, you know, your, your tragic event happened seven years ago. It's a part of your work life now. Does it feel like it's going to have a shelf life for you? Do you ever get sick of like, oh, I just, I don't want to, I don't want to retell my story. I don't want to give them the, the highlights. Like where, where are you with that? You're further down the road than I am. 
further down the road. And I definitely, I mean, I remember even when I was still in my writing group and I had probably been in that group for two years and I was still writing about Joel and I was still writing about my grief. And I remember saying out loud one night when I was like, you know, had read something aloud that I had just written and I was crying and I was like, when am I going to be done writing about this? Like, I'm like, I can't take it. And actually it's one of the men in the group who said, Melissa, you will write about it until you're done writing about it. Yeah. And I thought that was such a loving thing to say. And I, I mean, there are times where I am a little bit more self-conscious because people do think the book just came out. So they think, oh, this all happened very recently. Right, right. People are always surprised. They're like, oh, wait a minute. You're, you know, I, you know, I just, I give myself permission to, to have my feelings. And, and I think I I said this a a minute ago, but like, I still feel married to Joel. Like, yes, I, Marcos and I have a great relationship. He is my man. Like we're good, but Joel is my husband, Yeah, you know, and, and I, and that's still, even though like I've written a million essays and I have this book out in the world and I've been on podcasts and and interviews, but like, I still feel married to him and it doesn't make sense to me that our marriage is over Mm -hmm. because he died. Like that is still very hard for me to reconcile. We had a really good marriage. We were friends we got each other. We made each other laugh every single day. I mean, we were tight and it sounds so strange to say, but like, just because he died, like, yeah. it's almost like, okay, so he's not here, but he's still my husband. Like, that's how I feel. So why wouldn't I talk about my husband? Yeah. And I think people who know me and who know me well, understand that about me. And like you, like you're saying, like, you're a happy person. Yeah. I knew in the depths of my grief, and in, in the rawness of those early days, weeks, months, I knew somehow I just trusted that I would get back to my baseline. And I think my baseline is fairly happy. Yeah. So I just kind of thought I gave myself permission to feel my feelings. I was much more consumed with how my daughter was managing. Yeah. I, was, I really made her my vote for better or worse. She became my primary focus above anything else. And yeah, she's an only child. Yeah. Um, Not having Joel present really put a tremendous amount of pressure on me. He was a very active and engaged father. I mean, Sophie was always on the forefront of both of our minds at all times, but I think in losing my life partner and becoming, like I said, I I say I'm an only parent. I'm not like a part-time, like, oh good. My kids are going to be gone this weekend with their dad. Right. Right. no, like I am 24 seven and she, you know, she's 20 and I'm still feel that weight of responsibility with her. I don't know. I just feel like that making her my focus, managing like my own grief was doable and trying to figure out hers was harder for me because yeah. we grieved so differently. I was very out and vocal and crying everywhere. And I didn't care if I walked into a room hysterical. I didn't, you know, she was much more self-conscious. Again, she was 13. Yeah. So when you're 13, all you want to do is fit in with everybody else. And she already lost that when her yeah, dad died. You, you were the one, the woman whose, you know, husband died. She was the kid whose dad died. 
And that, right. you know, there are kids who really crave sticking out in a group. I, at 13, most of us want to find a cohort that just sort of feels like they accept us, but nobody wants to stick out for something that isn't, you know, I'll be head cheerleader or I'll be the, you know, valedictorian, but I'm not interested in being looked at with pity. My daughter now is 13. The relationship that she has with my husband, which has really nothing to do with me. You know, he de- takes right. her places, he reads books with her. They focus on stuff that like, there. if he were not around, I can't do that. I'm not interested in history the way that they are interested in history. I'm not going to read that book with you. I'll sit here and lament the fact that your dad is not here to do it with you. But that's part of the brutalness of parenting a child through this, just like every relationship that we're in brings out different pieces of us. And I really think actually you write beautifully about how you struggle and love your daughter, but know that you can't show up to make that stuff better for her. Excruciating. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's, that's, you know, and I have to say like, she's doing great. She really is like, she's such a good kid. She's so, she has all of Joel's kindness and goodness and, you know, but she and I are very different kinds of people and she and I are so tight. And I just, you know, she just makes my heart smile. I just, I love her so much, but I feel Joel's absence. I think in a way that she doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. Because you know what you knew him in a lot of ways better as an adult and you know what he would have guided her through or shown up for her for. And again, like we said before, what he would have wanted to be able to give her that, that he would have looked forward to. I mean, I think that part is so brutal when you love someone and you've internalized them and you've memorized them. You can, I mean, you're a screenwriter, like you can write their character onto the page and know how they would behave and what they would do. And, you know, both my mom and dad are gone. And every once in a while, I mean, I just had this with this Netflix documentary that's about the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum art heist. And my mom just loved true crime. And that was her favorite museum. And she read every book about it. And that Netflix documentary, I mean, they should definitely be paying me because I am always advocate, you know, I'm always like, you should watch it. (laughs) But she would have loved it. I mean, I can script the entire conversation that we would have had together. And I'm just sorry for her. She didn't get to see it. And I'm sorry for me that I didn't get to have the conversation. And I know how it would go, but I still yearn for the actual existence of it, you know? Well, that's that thing where like you pick up the phone to call and you realize, oh, I can't. Yeah. Like I, you know, that happens a lot in the beginning. It did for me, but it happened recently. I don't even remember what it was. I was like, oh my God, I can't wait to tell Joel. And then I was like, oh. Yeah. Let me ask you about that because this is something that I have come to understand. You know, there are these fascinating things about how the brain works. And you may know this already that there are people as they're talking that they see their words and sentences. Do you know this? That there's you know, and, and so I always ask my clients that now, like when you are talking, do you see words or do you not? And there's, I don't. So I didn't know. It was an interesting interesting. Yeah. Um, no, so I, you don't, it's a, it's a smaller percentage of the population, but it's, but it, you know, it's statistically significant. I'm curious about like there, I always ask people, are you someone who has a consciousness of your person or do you talk to them? Like, do you have actual open, full-on conversations where you hear them. And it's fascinating to me because I do not at all. When my mom died, she died. When my dad died, he died. I can conjure up how they would feel. I can imagine 
how they might enter into a scene, but I do not hear them. And I'm not like, Hey mom, how are you doing? I mean, I just don't do that. Do you do that with Joel? Do you more think about him? Like how does he show up as a living memory? I would say his presence is what I try to conjure more than his words. Okay. So it's not that I, I mean, every now and then I will like say, oh my God, hon, like you won't believe it, but I don't anticipate an answer, nor can I conjure what his answer might be. It's more the feeling of him. Yeah. Yeah. You know? um, but I have pictures of him all over the house still. And I'll always say hi, or I'll talk to him going up the stairs. You know, I have all those family photos. And that's what's so interesting too. So my sister came to visit fairly recently. And when she was looking around, she just said, you know, you've done such a great job of keeping Joel alive. Mm. And that was such a great thing to say, because that's how I feel. It's like, when I say like, he's still my husband or we're still married, or it's his presence that is a continual absence. It's, it works both ways. His, his absence is always a presence and there's always the absence of a presence. Yeah. And that's what it is. It's just like the feeling of Joel. Well, what's beautiful about what you're saying and really my hope for anybody that's listening to the podcast, that's in grief, which, you know, I sort of assume is everybody is to hear that that's possible, right? That, because I think when people are pushing sad, hard feelings away, it's because they think they're not going to get there. And what I think about as a trauma therapist is just, you know, I, I get that you think you can't get there. I totally understand that. And you can borrow on my belief that you will, because I have been able to do it. I, and I'm just like a normal person. I'm not a superhero. I have seen other people who should not have survived untenable loss survive. So, you know, particularly stories that are the hottest that are, you know, the ones of mothers who lose children and everybody's immediate response to that is I couldn't live through that. And mothers who have lost children hate when people say that, because what does that mean that they did live through it? And really what it means is they figured out how to navigate a space that other people can't even consider with their minds without going under the water. And so when you're describing like, you know, other people I imagine are listening and like, oh, I don't think I could leave pictures of my husband out. It would be too painful. And so, you know, my, my feeling about that is feelings are feelings and they shift and change all the time. And if what you want is to have an active present day relationship with this person that you loved who happened to have died it's almost like yoga, right? Like it's a practice. You have to practice it. And maybe sometimes it hurts and sometimes it doesn't. But when you look at all the modern grief theories, they all come to that. They all come to the idea that your narrative story needs to progress past feeling the loss all the time and into integrating the loss, holding them with some sort of reverence in a memory that feels like a present memory, not like that you feel like they are alive, but that you can be in the presence of the loss of them without so much pain that you can't even really be present. That that, you know, I think, you know, everybody's sort of hoping and saying that's where we're headed. 
And when people feel like they're not able to do that, what I say is, you know, if you're not sure if you're doing it, go see a therapist who specializes in grief and loss and they'll help you along, you know, really need to believe it's possible. And that's what I hear you saying is like, you expected that you would still get back to a, a, a sentiment in your own self in your own five senses in your body of being happy to have your life. And lo and behold, you have. And that it's a self-fulfilling prophecy for a lot of people, which is, you know, can you have hope? And one of the things that I think is fascinating for me as someone who has recently discovered the process of writing as a grief tool is that editing and being a therapist are very similar, which is just dump all the words all over the page, come into your session and just say all the things that you feel, dump them out, vomit them everywhere. The editing process is what are the threads of the, of the experience you're having? Oh, you seem sad. You know, is that what we're talking about here? Right? Like I have been stunned to discover that what I do as a therapist is what other people do for me in my writing. Megan, I really noticed that you're talking. I know it's, it's really, really fascinating. So my editor who I love She's always like, you know, I hope this doesn't hurt your feelings. I don't. And I'm like, are you kidding? It's amazing. Recently, she said something to me and I was like, wow, I didn't even know I was doing that, but I am doing that. Like, how cool is that? That that's exciting. But I think that that stuff is about the connection, right? Like the connection around the words, the connection around the experience, the connection with yourself. I mean, the other thing too, with writing specifically is that when I started writing and telling my story personally, I was doing it for me. Yeah, I wasn't doing it for this nebulous reader out there hoping I would connect. It was because for me, it was so healing and so cathartic. And I think if I had thought about my reader, um, I don't know that I would be, have been able to finish or even write anything. And maybe my screenwriting career helped kind of pave the way for that because I'm sure there are many writers who that's all they think about is what is the audience going to say? What are the critics going to say? What are the reviews? I never thought that way. I never thought, you know, I've worked on some big shows and I never thought, oh my God, 6 million people are going to be watching. And if I give this person this line of dialogue, like I never thought of that. I always thought of these people were real, even though they weren't, this is a real situation, even though it wasn't, you know, I think differently. Like I, that's why I think I was so surprised yeah. that anybody was even interested in, in, in hearing my grief story and my love story and all of it. You know, I, I think what you're talking about, and I, you know, one of the phrases I use a lot in grief is like, you can't see it past your own hands. And so your ability to be empathetic with other people or to wonder what their experience with you is, is very limited because you're so overwhelmed. Uh-huh by what you are carrying that there's no perspective in the grief writing workshop that I run, you know, I talk about the process of writing versus the product of writing. And so in the grief writing workshop, it's really about the process. You are using words to come to know your narrative story of loss better period. End of story. There is a a secondary element for people who just happen to use language really beautifully, or that is their art and craft. Then there is also the product of what it means to sort of take that story and present it in a way that other people, you're really inviting them to connect to it. So what I'm hearing you say is you were in your process. This process was for you. 
you were stunned to discover that your process also generated a product that other people wanted to connect to. And I'll just say for our listeners, there are a lot of people out there who are going to take a dance class because that's what will be good for their grief. They're going to paint, they're going to pick up the violin, they're going to cook, and no one is going to ask them to open a restaurant. No one is going to say, you star in our (laughs) ballet. And that doesn't mean it doesn't have meaning and that it doesn't have value because I really think, I mean, again, we have some neuroscience around this. Those, Those activities that are grief processing activities are rewiring or reconnecting parts of our brain that were traumatized by that big loss. I want to be clear, it doesn't have to be a sudden loss. Sudden loss happens to have a higher rate of trauma. But, you know, my dad died slowly of cancer over a year and I watched that happen. I participated in that happen. And it still had its own traumatic elements to it. My brain was still impacted. So, you know, again, it maybe isn't surprising that you created as already a writer, a a product that was, you know, words that really you were able to express yourself well, and people wanted to connect to. I also think those of us that are just writing the words so that they help us feel seen and known by ourselves, that it's just a beautiful modality to get to use. Yeah. And I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up too, because it, exactly right. Like writing for me is what brought me back yeah. to myself and to my study, but for other people, absolutely. It could be gardening. It could yeah. be just like getting outside for a walk every day and that's enough. And that is what's going to help them manage this myriad of feelings that grief and loss create for me, it was writing and I'm so grateful. And I didn't even know what was writing until somebody suggested it to me, even though I was a writer. So I totally advocate whatever it is that people need to do to help them get through it. Yeah. And what I'm often talking about as a therapist is, you know, when you're in trauma or when you've been traumatized by something, again, you're not in your creative mind. You're more in a reactive state of like, I don't know. So I'll give people like a menu, just pick from the menu, which one of these multiple things seems like something you could do. And if there's nothing on the menu, do you already have something in mind? Because we know our systems, we've been in them. But it is always interesting to me to see people start something that they never did before or that they haven't done since they were 14. I had a conversation with a woman who, because of where she lived, she started doing open water, cold swims. And, yeah. you know, she so talked- I just said somebody who does that too. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, again, I was like, so the geek in me, the like neuroscience geek in me was like, oh my God, I can't wait to talk to you about this. Because one thing that we do in trauma when people are really- dissociate and, and out is we shift how we shift their temperature. So we give them ice cubes to hold, or we take their shoes off and put their feet on the ground and put something cold or hot on their feet. So the idea that what she was doing to sort of go through her grief was like shock her system. Now, thank God she thought of that herself because as a trauma therapist in a million years, I wouldn't be like, look, you could try jumping in a freezing cold lake and see if that helps you. So that's the other thing I like to tell people is like, there is no one right way and no one can really tell you what to do. You kind of end up having to guess your way forward. I mean, I really, really encourage people to read your book. I read it in like 24 hours. It was so quick and easy to read. And I wanted to go all the way through the story, but it really did cover like all the high notes of what 
everybody inevitably hits in grief and loss in such a beautiful way. Thank you so much. I, I also want to say, because I don't know if we said this, but you know, I have so many reviews and so many, you know, I hear from people all the time. And the one thing that I hear all the time is how funny the book is. Yes. Absolutely. You mentioned talking, but you know, like, yes, we we may be dealing with grief or we may be widows we may have lost a parent whatever but that doesn't mean like we're still funny we still have fun we right. still you know like my widow group we would be laughing like yeah. you know I say in the book if somebody were to walk into any of our widow meetings they would never think we were a group of widows yeah. because we were having too much fun and yeah. we were young and we were you know but I just want to say that because I think there is this idea like oh grief book I, I yeah. just I you know, but I, I've been told that my book is very funny. <laughs> no, that's such a good thing to say, because again, there are some grief books out there that feel like, you know, they go with somber classical music. And you're right that I think part of what may has made your book really popular is that it is funny. It's irreverent. It's really honest. And where you land is maybe where you thought you would land, which is, you know, with a full life, it's not all darkness and somber. And I think that goes back to what we were talking about before when people are like, you know, when are you going to talk, stop talking about this serious subject? I'm like, you don't understand. Like I laugh on this podcast with people. We are talking about (laughs) ridiculous things. One of the things when I was early in grief and loss, I would text, I would put out on Instagram, like I am currently accepting all the ridiculous things you've seen on the internet that made you laugh so hard. You almost beat partly because my mom loved that. My mom, I would come to visit her and she'd be like, have you seen this one? And it would be something I sent her, but I'd be like, okay, mom, you know, show me the picture of the little kid at the County fair in Iowa saying all the weird, (laughs) funny words, you know, but laughter is absolutely an antidote to feeling heavy and depressed and all those things. So I love that you highlighted that and remind us that, you know, bad things happen. It doesn't mean that we lose our humanity in it. And there is a lot of irreverence, beautiful irreverence, you know, laughing at at times when maybe I don't even want to laugh that are, (laughs) that are about the human spirit being super resilient and always kind of moving towards health and healing, which is just so good. Thank you so much. Listen, thank you so much for this. I am really, really grateful. This was great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of your week and I'll be back in touch. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Melissa Gould. I would really suggest that you go over and follow her on Instagram. She has a great Instagram and she's just always doing stuff about the book and other things. She and I have some plans to talk again about grief movies. Many of you know, I'm also doing a crossover podcast with Brooke James, the grief coach, and we are currently recording episodes about dating after loss. And Melissa has graciously agreed to be one of our guests on that. So you're going to hear about her on my Instagram and all of that for a while, but go follow her. She's so great. The book is so good. If you know anyone who has lost a partner, I'd highly recommend it as a gift. It's just so readable. Thanks so much for being here. Please don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts. It's been really helpful. There's 
lots and lots of folks listening to the podcast, which is so great. I'm so grateful to everybody who's listening. I have a couple of more episodes of this season, and then I'm scheduling and recording starting in September guests for next season. If anyone is interested in being on the podcast, get in touch with me through my website, Grief is My Side Hustle. Come follow me on Instagram. You can message me there or make suggestions of people that you would love to hear me talk to and my team will reach out to them. All right, everybody, we'll be back next week with a new episode. And once again, because someone asks pretty much every episode, this theme music is written by my brother, Brendan Reardon. He's not a professional recording artist, but he appreciates your compliments. Take care, everybody.